I invite you to this morning to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, Old Testament book following Joshua. Should be around page 232 in a pew Bible, hopefully that vicinity. Maybe page 233. And while you're turning there, let me just, again, if you are, I may have failed to mention this, if you are visiting with us today, we want to say we're so grateful for your taking the time to join us. And there, if you'd like to know more about our church, there are cards in front of you. There are greeters in the foyers uh, that can help you know a little bit more about what's going on. And we would love to uh, get to know you better. And so if you'd like to fill out a card, we'll definitely stay in touch with that. And let me just, on another note, lest I forget, express again my appreciation, Russell's appreciation, all of our appreciation to Aaron, Leslie, Elizabeth, and anybody else who took so much time this week uh, to notify <laughs> that they understand that there's a problem and help bear the burden of getting it functional for us today. So thank you so much. We very much appreciate it. <coughs> Judges chapter 2 this morning. I wanted to start off to, by saying I appreciate very much. I got to watch Chad preach online uh, and appreciated the way that he reminded us in his message that progress is not inevitable in the Christian life. You don't just progress because time is passing by. We progress as we follow the Lord and do what he says. In fact, he made a point, too, that the natural bent, and we understand this on so many friends, fronts, is to go the other way, to decline, to disintegrate, to fall apart. So if we are to live, let things just happen, it's not a good thing. If we just take life to some degree and just flow with it, we probably are not going to end up in the destination God has intended. But Judges tells us, among the other things that he, it, it will have to tell us, is that good news is that God always will make a way for us. There's always a way to return. There's always a way to come back. And that God himself is faithful to you and me even when we are repeatedly unfaithful to him. God doesn't disappear. He's committed to his people and he delights in bringing us back into fellowship with him. So this morning, in the time that we have, I'd like us to just consider Judges chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 6. If you recall, and you were with us last week, uh, Chad went ahead and got into the beginning of that chapter for us, which was important to close out the theme that he was approaching in the first chapter. And I'm going to run into 3, verse 6 today, from 2, 6 to 3, 6. And that sounds kind of bad in case you're aware with the gang culture in Chicago, 2, 6 is a gang. So uh, Judges chapter 2, verse 6. They're the 26th Street Boys, but uh, sorry, I didn't flash a sign there either. But I, I, I don't really look like a gangbanger, I get it. But I want us to think about three words, three divisions in the passage today that may be helpful to us as we kind of try to assess what really should be fairly apparent to us in our reading today. I want to, in the first four verses, four or five verses, I want to look at the setting or the condition that we're in. The second heading that I want to look at today is the cycle that appears and thirdly, the decline that inevitably we see following that we were set up so well last week with the message. And so, as we look at the passage today, let's begin in verse 6, Judges chapter 2, examining the condition or the setting that we find here. It says in verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, 
The people of Israel went each way to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who, lived out, who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So the setting comes this way. If you were paying attention last week, we actually kind of have a second introduction to the book. And Chad worked us through the first one. It kind of gave a step-by-step of the conquest, kind of geographic and historical. And now it seems that the narrator is coming to us, even, I should say, even pointing out last week that the angel of the Lord is speaking directly at the beginning of chapter two. And now it's like the narrator is coming to us in this setting and saying, I want to give you some theological reflections or points or summation as I work through the same material again. Because it reads a little funny right at the, death, uh, at the beginning of verse six, when it says, when Joshua dismissed the people, and in verse one of chapter one, it says Joshua already died. So we're already dealing, we're dealing with another introduction, and I think as we move through the book, you'll see that that's set into the overall structure of the book. But remember with me briefly that Judges is following a very exciting time, at least for our readership, right, in the, in the, as you read through the Old Testament, with the book of Joshua. It was a time when, for the most part, you would say, with exceptions like Achan and Ai or I, however you want to say that, the Gibeonite thing in chapter 9 of Joshua, it seemed like things were pretty good. God's people were faithful to God, and God helped them drive out because they were doing what he said to do. They obeyed him, and God blessed them. And so here we come into this situation now where things are obviously set up to be not the same. And the narrator here wants us to know in our passage today, he highlights again, remember the book of Joshua? Remember what was going on there? Joshua, great leader. Not perfect, but great leader. And Israel serves the Lord the entire time Joshua is. They're just known for that. Not perfectly, but that was the trajectory. Israel also, around the leadership that grew up that outlived Joshua but was on the scene, they also continued to faithfully serve the Lord. Not perfectly, but generally speaking. So we could say they were a faithful covenant community with the Lord. But once Joshua and the elders around that generation die out, things change quickly. It says in the passage, that the next generation did not know the Lord or his works. It was interesting today, I read, uh, this week I read an article. I, I don't make a habit of watching Jeopardy. I don't know if it's time of day or just time of life. I'm not sure. I don't know if I can answer any more questions at that time of the day, but, uh, or whatever you're supposed to do. But uh, maybe it's just because, you know, Trebek's not there anymore. But I, I, anyway, article reads this way, heading... Jeopardy fans reel as Lord's Prayer question goes unanswered. Okay, here the article reads, Jeopardy fans found themselves stunned Tuesday night after all three contestants failed to answer a question asking them to complete a line of the Lord's Prayer, that the most widely recited prayer in Christianity. The puzzle, worth $200, read, Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father which art in heaven, this be thy name. And all three contestants 
couldn't supply the word how. They don't know. They didn't know. Now, the point of the sermon is not to riff off on the horrors of culture and that people don't know the Lord's Prayer, but there is one form of not knowing, which is, I just don't know anything about it. And when we come back to the passage here, I think it's a little bit different. From a generation to come up after a generation has served faithfully to the Lord, we could swing all the way over one way and say, these people all just knew the Lord and did the right thing and ignored their kids and they were horrible parents. Maybe. We could just say the kids had their fingers in their ears and didn't want to do it. The point being, this isn't a situation where they hadn't heard the facts. It's not like people that maybe, unfortunately, in our country just hadn't heard the Lord's Prayer. Lord, send forth laborers into the harvest so they know the words of the Lord's Prayer, among other things. But this generation does not know God and doesn't know the works of God. And I'm just going to say it's a little, it takes two to tango. It's one thing to sit in church and to hear about God. It's one thing to be involved in a family that, to some degree, goes along or embraces or, or seeks to follow God with all their heart. But there also has to be an internalizing, right? There also has to be a personal embracing of that. Nobody can go there except for you in your own soul. And I believe that's probably the most complete way to look at this knowledge of God, that the generation maybe got so, so familiar or just was around the things of God that they did not decide to make it their own. So it's more than just, I don't know about that. It's, it's a thing you do on Sunday. It's a thing God's there for the tough times. I've got my life and I'll live it. I don't know. But there rises a generation who doesn't know the Lord, probably had plenty of knowledge, but no personal connection to God. They weren't aware of how God had worked on God's behalf, or they just didn't meditate on it. I wouldn't try to meddle too much with anybody's parenting in a sermon per se, but I do think it's worth talking about God a lot to your kids to try to see that when something works out at work and you have a little bit of extra or something like this, look what God did here. When we've gone through a hard time and something's not quite right, look how God can help us here. When we don't know what to do, let's pray about it. And we're weaving in a God-directed focus in our lives, a rejoicing in his blessings, a patience in his trials, and a dependence on him for whatever he brings our way. There's my parenting advice for the day, even though I said I wasn't going to do it, right? But perhaps what we need to observe from this section of the passage today is that quite quickly, a private disintegration follows with public disintegration. Public apostasy can always be traced back to private apostasy. You go with your body where you've first gone with your mind. And so how much it means for us to take heed today, whether we feel we're young or old, that what is going on in my heart is oriented around, it is structured toward, it is in fellowship with God as the one who tells me he loves me, calls me to do what... He asks me to do, and I obey out of love and trust to him. So the setting or the condition highlights the precursors to decline. 
And that's primary lack of a personal relationship with God, taking lightly the works that have been done in the past, not paying attention to the hand of God in the pages of Scripture. You may not ha- say, I don't know that I have a physical family that can talk to me about what God's done for them. Then it is on us, right? Because we have God's word to see what he has done. And by the way, what he is going to do through the pages of Judges to still call people out and redeem them and restore them through these pages, calling us to the place where we can only get there with Jesus himself. So while we observe Israel's embrace of the pagan culture around them, we can learn a lot from the mistakes they made. And we can choose to press on to know the Lord. We can rehearse, we can consider and meditate and live out the truth of his word. We can share what we know of him and what he has done for us with other people, especially those of us who God may have placed other individuals in our homes. How important it is for us to connect life, blessing, purpose, and meaning from knowing God. It comes from knowing God. It's important to consider what that is. Separation from the knowledge of God is the very thing that brings disintegration and destruction to our souls and by extension, our lives. And so this is why John 17, 3 talks about eternal life this way, that they know you, the only true God, that they know you, and Jesus, whom you have sent. So the setting is bleak. A generation arises that doesn't know the Lord or his works. And the next section here through the rest of the second chapter shows us this cycle or this pattern. And while we observe a pattern of how Israel and God respond in these situations, because we're going to look at Israel's pattern and also the Lord's, the book of Judge reminds us that God is not limited to a formulaic response. A plus B equals C. He's not opposed, and he is consistent, but he's not opposed to his character, which is to operate by grace. And so verse 11 reads this way, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Here it comes, right? So let's look at Israel's cycle first, if I can say it. We see Israel delving, diving, heading into sin, right? They do evil in the sight of the Lord and serve the Baals. Now, Baals are the plural form of the Canaanite gods. They go along with the Ashtoreth, you'll see in this as well, are the male and female kind of pantheon elements of Canaanite gods. And the whole point of this was to interact with the gods was the promise of physical fertility, blessing, wealth, and all that kind of stuff. And how much of a same kind of thing today, we love wealth and prosperity. And the gods of our culture aren't necessarily embodied in wooden stone today, but they cry out to us in different forms. And, and Israel looks at this and they say, we don't need God. We'll choose to break our covenant with God. We'll sin and serve Baal. And they abandoned the Lord, verse 12, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after the other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. They bowed down to them. Verse 12 is showing us abandonment from God. Verse 11, evil and serving God. Again in verse 12, bowing down and worshiping Canaanite gods. Verse 13 continues on showing us, again, abandonment of Jehovah for Baal and Ashtaroth. They abandoned the Lord, verse 13, and served Baal and Ashtaroth. So what happens next? Verse 14, they experience punishment and oppression. 
Verse 14 reads, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunder, plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them out of, into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. So they were sold into, by their enemies. They couldn't overcome these enemies anymore. Verse 15 shows us God's hand is against them. When they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned, warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. You know, I think about this when you see in Scripture the hand of the Lord being against you. I, I, I don't know if I've had a chance to, to share this illustration, but this generally comes to mind when I see the hand of the Lord in a disciplinary sense in Scripture. I have uh, two older brothers, and unfortunately they used to be bigger. Uh, one is still, but un I kind of passed one up, if you know what I mean. Um, and I was the runt. I was, I, there was never food for me at the table. I got to eat what was left over. Okay, I'm making that up. Um, but they were really good guys, but, you know, sometimes brothers, you know. So I would, of course, never be the problem, but um, <laughs> I remember times when, when I would be running my mouth. I, I, you know, I just had a few things that uh, they needed to hear, and they weren't too convinced that they needed to hear it. And... I was going to jump on my bike and get out of, the, get out of there. And so uh, that hit and run tactics, I think, still fairly important if you're kind of small compared to... Okay. And uh, back then, you know, I had one of those uh, kind of homemade bikes with the uh, V handlebars right there. Uncle Raj made it for us. And kind of a, painted it black, this old crummy in a banana seat. Remember the banana seat bikes, right, with the little steel piece around the back? Uh, that kind of was the frame that was left, usually left to where you could hold. So I'd get on there, I'm like, and take that big guy or whatever, and something like that, and I think I'm going to go away. And all they do is pick up that back tire with that handle. <laughs> and you can pedal all day long. You can, you can try to keep one hand and, you know, come back with a haymaker in reverse. And they're just like, you done yet? It's, it's kind of silly. Like, like, it's futile because it's so overwhelmingly, um, you're so over, out, outmatched. You know, when the Lord resists you, it's way more significant than just picking a bike seat off the back, picking the back tire off the, off the ground. This is not God's plan for his people. This is not his heart. But if we decide that we are in charge of writing our Ten Commands to replace His Ten Commands, and we insist on living in a way that is for our own glory against what He has called us to live for His glory, then we can expect as well the hand of God to be against us. Israel's sin is breaking their covenant with the Lord. Israel is experiencing oppression and judgment. And predictably, we see in verse 15, at the end of the verse, they were in terrible distress. And I'll save you those stories about my older brothers putting me in terrible distress because I deserved it. Okay, But the, the point is it becomes overwhelming. And you just have to take some time to talk to people well enough to know that when they've chosen to go their own way and God sovereignly brings his refining discipline into their lives, there comes a time where you're like, I am in great distress. I need the Lord. By the way, it's a hard time, but it's, the, it's a great response. I need you. They're in great distress. Israel's groaning, 
What's interesting here, you don't see evidence of them actually repenting, and this gives us hope, we'll get to in a second, to see the heart of God. He's moved even as you struggle under the weight of your own decisions. As I struggle with what I've done to walk away from the Lord. Israel groans, they're in distress. Other times you'll see them cry out. That's part of the pattern. And then what does God do? Verse 16, it says this. Then the Lord raises up judges. And again, we need to think of these guys primarily as maybe a tribal chieftain, kind of a deliverer of a time, rather than putting them in the pantheon of saints to look up to in the hall of, something of the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. You're going to see week after week that these guys become more and more part of the problem than the solution. But God even uses people that struggle to rescue his own people out of trouble, saving them out of the hands of those who plundered them. And then verse 17, notice with me, after that, they did not listen to the judges. They hoard after the gods, bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And so the cycle repeats. Sin, breaking God's laws, their covenant with the Lord. They experience punishment and oppression. They cry out. They're groaning. They're in great distress. God delivers, and Judges continues to tell us this is what happens to people who walk away from God. You disintegrate. While God's grace can surprise us, we can also see a beautiful pattern, perhaps a more hopeful one, as I've just alluded to, about God's, can I call it a cycle here as well. How does God operate in here? And this ought to help us remember, even when you and I are despairing with our own sinfulness, that he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we see God's response here in his cycle in in Judges, that God responds in anger to Israel's sin. You could look back in verse 14 briefly and say the first thing, the anger of the Lord is kindled. Again in verse 20, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And we need to just make a quick note about this. This is not the type of fly-off-the-handle anger that happens when your favorite team makes a bad play and you throw your drink at the TV screen, okay? This is not the outburst of anger when your children do the wrong thing for the third or fourth time that you need to go back and apologize for because you lost it. Actually, you just got exposed, right, for what's going on cooking inside, right? So the anger of God is, is, is a righteous anger because there's no darkness, there's no problem with God, and it's, it's not a strong emotion, although God has emotions, right? But it's a settled disposition as a part of his character to respond to what is wrong. So for him to be angry is not for him to be sinful. It's him saying, this is the right way, and that's wrong. No. No. No, it's not out of control. And there can be, and we need to grow into this, hopefully sooner than later, right? To learn the heart and character of God so that we as his people can have a humble yet righteous response to injustice, to sin, which is a settled no. No, it's not okay. And you can say more than no, but it's not a venting of your frustration on somebody personally because you're tired of that trouble. And you can talk to my kids and know that I've gone back and said, that was wrong. I handled that one wrong again. 
you caught dad. You didn't caught the fact that dad might have a point, but he blew it by being frustrated with you. And so we don't need to consider him to be, God to be a cosmic bully, kind of arbitrarily blowing people up for being as frail as they are. In fact, he's seeing a pattern and he's responding consistent with his character and God responds with a righteous anger to the sin of, God, of Israel, which is to choose to walk outside. Verse 14 and 20 highlight that anger. And secondly, then we see, you would see this right away as well, that God will punish sin. So verses 14, giving over to plunderers, being sold to their enemies. God's hand was on them for harm. And then in verse 21, another aspect of the punishment, I will not drive out the countries from them. And then, as I mentioned already, there's another beautiful thing that happens, though, is God has compassion or pity. God looks at that groaning in distress, and without them actually saying anything in, in these situations, they're just groaning. It doesn't say they're repenting. He moves into the situation. He anticipates the fact, should I come in and help them, they would likely return to me. So God is taking initiative to restore a relationship, and this gives us hope in those dark times where it's think, when, I, when you're praying that prayer, it's me again. I did the same thing again. And God runs to you with compassion. And in his wisdom and his sovereignty, he may apply a, con a consequence that we agree with or disagree with, but he runs to you to restore you and me back into fellowship with him. God responds in anger, he punishes sin, but he pities us and he delights in delivering us. And so in verses 16 and 18, we see again the Lord raising up judges who enabled, God enabled, came upon and empowered them to push off the oppression that they were to under. So I'd like to affirm two things out of this section with us today. First, the absolute certainty of this truth that you and I disintegrate in life when we are not in fellowship with God. You and I will fall apart when we fall for the facade that I'm good on Sunday, but nothing is stirring in my heart toward God will disintegrate. I'm not God. I don't know when or how. I'm just saying we see it over and over in the pages of Scripture. And the call to you and I is embrace the Lord, follow the Lord, obey the Lord. We need to be people that are known as hearing and following, obeying God's word. And when we choose not to, we're in an unlikely or a difficult spot, I should say. You and I are tempted, like Israel, embrace the ideas, the values, the idols of today. Is it possible that we could be claiming to be the covenant people of God, but instead we actually embody, embrace, enjoy more of what the world is offering us than what God himself gives to us in his own person? A second thing to consider for, for a moment here today. Any Christian would likely admit that there is some aspect remaining in their life that they struggle with, a sin particularly. Even among all the things that you could say, which one? God's really plowing deep. But there's like, there's the, the one, you know, the one. We can see that cycle that we described for a minute. 
in our own lives. We ignore God's law. We experience his discipline. We cry out in misery and we experience his forgiveness. And I would just say, not a whole hymn text today, just a title or just a phrase. Please be assured that though our sins are many, his mercy is more. So that's why somebody like Prophet Isaiah would say to you in the first chapter, 18th verse, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. This is the God of Israel. This is the God of the Bible. This is your God. A last thing to consider this morning is the decline that comes to us in the end of 2 and 3, in the beginning of 3, we'll just pick it up in chapter 3. It says this, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. That is not a warmongering God. That is not what's going on there. The, the, the illustration there is the conquest of, 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 in Joshua required eradicating people groups because this is the land God drive them out. And the problem with the generation that did not know the Lord is they didn't know what it took to drive the people out. And here in chapter 3, he's saying, I want to see if you guys will war the way that I said to be in fellowship with me, to own the land or live in the land the way you're designed to be. And so verse 3, these are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Labadon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded to their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their son, and they served their gods. The decline. After identifying the way uh, and the patterns that Israel will display and the Lord displays, the text now moves forward to show us that God is still interested, even after all that, of having relationship with his people, but they're going to need to make a choice. They can choose to listen and follow God, keeping their covenant relationship with him him intact, or they can choose to go their own way, embracing the way of the people around them. And the test put before Israel is to not trap, is not a trap from God. It's an opportunity for Israel to show God that they will respond to his faithfulness with loyal love and obedience. It's it's the teacher, right, that looks at somebody who doesn't follow the process that is important for the student to find success in their field And while the content is fine, it's the process that they need to deal with, and the student gets it wrong. And so the teacher puts some form of a mark on there that isn't anything besides, it's not really a smiley face, right? 
and sends it back. And the kid is frustrated, the student, the scholar, whatever we're supposed to call him, and goes back and wants to say, well, the issue here is I put these, this rubric in front of you. It follows up with what we set up in the syllabus. I made the announcement in class, and you chose to do this thing your own way. It looks really good. It just doesn't follow the parameters of the assignment given. So go back and try it again. And Johnny maybe goes back and does, but I really like what, you see what's happening? It's, it's not... This, the teacher is saying, I'm eager to have you succeed, but there's one way to do it, and I'm setting up the path for you. Just do this, and Johnny's got to decide, am I going to follow the procedure, or am I going to do my own thing? And here's the Lord not trying to just trap somebody with a trick question, but say, here it is. Let's try it again. What's going on in your heart? Do you delight in hearing and doing what I say? So if you would do this with me, if you would take your Bible and go over to Deuteronomy 7 for a second, we'll just close out quickly here this morning by looking at this decline. What was the response of God's people professing to know the Lord? You'd think they're set up for success here. Would Israel, in response to this opportunity, Continue the mission to drive out the Canaanites. It's very interesting to note just about the, the cities that were mentioned. It, 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 it shows the, the narrator's scope of understanding how long they've been in the land because the Philistines were kind of a seafaring people that came along a little bit later. The, the tribes that are mentioned here kind of show all regions of Canaan, north, south, east, and west. And it's kind of illustrating God wanted total movement in and possessed the land and what we're going to see something in a minute, if you haven't put it already together, is they're going to see a different decision on behalf of Israel. So the totality of the land. Will you become a Canaanite or will you drive and turn everything and be God's covenant people? The question is, will you drive out the Canaanites here? So the expectation, if you're in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and 2, is this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Their answer, we just read it a minute ago. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites. Wrong answer. Try again, right? So you go back over to Deuteronomy 7, and we see verses 3 and 4. He says this way, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your, sons and da- to their, your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from you from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. And their answer over here, they intermarried with them. Lastly, the expectation was put to the people there in verses 5 and 6 of Deuteronomy 7. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in in pieces their pillars, and chop down their asherim, and birth their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Judges 3. They served Canaanite gods. 
not an information problem. It's not a trick question. It's the display of people who are being shown to not have a loyal heart of love and a commitment to Jehovah God. So the book of Judge has, Judges has much more to teach us, much to teach us about God and more about ourselves. And we have to understand that the drift of the human heart is always to self-love, affirmation, and self-accommodation rather than de- demonstrating loyalty and obedience and fidelity to God. So in the midst of our frailty, our failure, and our unfaithfulness, Judges is teaching us that there is still a God in the middle of all that, faithful, righteous, forgiving. The depravity to which God's people fall is shocking, embarrassing, and totally evil, but none of that eliminates God from the picture. God's bigger than it all. In his righteousness, his justice, his mercy, and his grace, they're all on display, holding us accountable, but never casting us away. So Judges turns our attention away from hoping in our performance or in human deliverance like a judge. Instead, our eyes are turned to God, who is at work through the darkest situation, making a way for his people to be in fellowship with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the few moments that we've had here, and we rejoice that we can sing to, hear from, obey, follow a God who is merciful, who is good, who is wise, who is kind, and delights in restoring and redeeming people like me. And I pray, dear God, that during the remainder of our service that your spirit would use what has been said already, what has been sung, what will be shared in a few minutes, to stir our hearts to be faithful, loyal people that keep their promises to God first at all costs, to avoid the disintegration that we are seeing displayed in the book of Judges. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.